0: So as we return to our study of this book of 1 Corinthians, we come now to the end of one of the most significant chapters, not just in the book, but in the whole of the Bible, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we've been in this now, this is the third week. And the reason that Paul has written this is because an issue has arisen in this church that he planted in the first century city of Corinth, and the issue is simply this. These people have come to the conclusion on their own and against the teachings of Paul that there is no resurrection of the dead. That's what they've concluded. And so Paul is writing to say, hey, whoa, 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 hang on a second. You're not right about that. And that's what we've looked at. He's painstakingly walked us through this deal that said, first of all, Jesus is risen from the dead. And then last week, because Jesus is risen from the dead and he's the first fruits of those who arise from the dead. There's a whole harvest of people who belong to Jesus, and who die in faith in Jesus, who will, in fact, rise from the dead. And today, as we pick up his argument, what we find is their reason for saying, hey, Paul, you're right about a lot of things, we think, but just not about this one. And the reason is pretty simple, and I think it'll make sense to you, at least initially. They're coming to Paul and going, hey, look, you know, resurrection from the dead. So... We've got to believe that God has something better for us than that. Because, Paul, I want you to think about the body that you have. and Because we've been thinking about the bodies that we have, and here's what we know to be true about these bodies that we have, and all of us, too. It is that we struggle in these bodies, and we struggle with sin, and we struggle with disease, and we struggle with addiction, and we struggle with passion, and we struggle with selfishness, and we struggle with cancer, and we struggle with all of these other things. And then, having lived a life in which we've struggled, good grief, we lay our bodies down in death. They're buried, and not to be overly gruesome or graphic for you, but they rot away down to nothing but bones and teeth. So then having been decomposed in that fashion, first of all, how will we be recomposed? And then secondly, if all we're going to get back is what we've had, good grief, you can keep it. Doesn't sound like a good deal. Surely God has something better in mind for Christ and for us than that. So what Paul does in this part of his argument is he comes to them and it says, all right, look, you're right about one thing, only one, but one thing you're right about and then everything else you're wrong on. So here's what you're right about. God does in fact have something better in mind for us than that. So right about that, wrong about the fact that we're not going to be raised literally, physically, and actually from the dead, for in fact, we will. We die, we're buried, our spirit goes to heaven where we await the day of Christ's return. A day in which the world, the heavens and the earth are made new, and in which you will receive a new body made fit for a completely different world. An entirely different existence. He's going to come and say, no, no, no. Christ is raised, and He's raised in a resurrection body. And hey, you know what else? That's what you get. It's a different body. And it is unfathomably greater. But before we look at all of that, I want to remind you why he's having this conversation with us. Because it's, again, not just because maybe we find it interesting, or we've got all kinds of questions. Hey, awesome, Paul, you're going to answer all this stuff for us. That's great. We're going to go to lunch. We're going to have a great conversation about this, and I'm so glad that I know that. Now I'll just go back to life as though I've never heard it. No. He's coming to us with his enduring word, trying to create an enduring work. It is a call to action, to live lives that in the end, when it's all tallied, we're not lived in vain. And I'm going to prove that to you by reading to you the last verse that we're going to look at first. I want you to hear how he concludes the entire conversation, the whole discourse on the resurrection of the dead because he comes all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 58, and here's what he says. He says, therefore, that's conclusory language. He's saying, look, everything that I've said has been leading up to this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, here it is, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the what? In the work, I actually want you to say it, okay? It's going to be awesome. It's going to be fun. And even if it isn't, just do it anyway. The nine o'clock service kind of, sort of did okay with this. This section over here was really lame. So now the pressure's on you. I actually want you to say the word work. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work. You are so much more awake than they were. So much better. But what kind of work? Well, therein lies the rub, doesn't it? in the work of the Lord. Well, why should we do that? Why should that be the kind of work that I endeavor in every other work that I do actually ultimately to produce? Knowing that in the Lord, your labors, your work is not in vain. Well, why is that? Why is it not in vain? Because Jesus is risen, and everybody who dies and is buried in faith in Christ upon the return of Christ will, like Christ, be raised. That is to say, the cycle is broken. Listen, if all there is in this life, if this is the cycle, the movement of humanity, you ready? From life to death, 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 to life to death, it's a hamster wheel. It's going nowhere, and it means nothing. If it's life to death, and then there's nothing left, there's nothing else. Nothing we do matters. You're like, oh, but it mattered to me. Yeah, and then you die and you cease to exist. Oh, well, it mattered to that person. and they died and ceased to exist. Look, it reduces everything to rubble, to vanity. But if that's not the cycle for the people of God, if it's a different movement, if it's from life to death to resurrection unto eternal life, it's linear. It's going somewhere. And then suddenly everything you do, every work in the Lord, man, it is not in vain. It is not meaningless. It is not purposeless. It is altogether purposeful. It matters, and it matters for all of eternity because, guys, think about it. If God uses something you say, something you do, some act of kindness, some sacrifice of mercy, some act of generosity of any kind to in any way, shape, or form influence someone or draw someone or some group of people into a relationship with Christ or to encourage the faith of the faithful even, well, my goodness, that work endures forever. It's an enduring work, and why is that? Well, because what is the movement for the people of God? It's life to death, but it doesn't end there. It's not a hamster wheel. It continues. Resurrection from the dead like you, they too will be raised. Paul is calling us by means of the entirety of this conversation to invest and leverage the whole of our lives in work that endures. That's the goal. So with that in mind, We pick up our study today in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35, where Paul says this. So he raises the topic. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And by that he means this, with what kind of body do they come forth from the grave? Because again, hey, Paul, you know what? If all we get back is what we've laid down, oh man, that's not exciting. Who's excited about that? So now listen to his response. He says, you foolish person. You know, like... He obviously has not read How to Win Friends and Influence People, right? I mean, he's not, he is not very practiced in subtlety, it seems. You foolish person. Well, what makes them foolish exactly? Because I'm tracking a little with their thinking. I mean, like, what, what makes them foolish? What makes them foolish, first of all, is that they have failed in their thinking on this topic to account for the wondrous working God, for the ability of our God to do anything to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. What have they done? They've limited God to their imagination. And so they've looked at this and said, well, if we're decomposed in that fashion, how can we be recomposed? I mean, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I can't figure out how that could possibly be. With my tiny little finite mind, my imagination is not capacious enough to encompass that. And because I can't understand it and I can't imagine it, therefore, then I can't believe that an infinite God with infinite abilities and an infinite imagination can do that. Listen, that. listen to that, because it's irrational. And we all do it. We demand that God somehow condescend to become comprehensible to our tiny, tiny little finite minds before we will go, okay, you know what, I think I'll sign off on that. God's like, oh, great, you will. Fant- no. He comes to us and he presents himself to us as he is. And he gives us his word and says, believe that. And that's what he's done for them and us. But even more specifically than that, they're foolish for overlooking what they already know about the way that God designs things. And so what Paul does now is he calls to mind for them and for us the image of a seed. And even though we're not farmers, we've all sown some seeds, have we not? So we get how they work. We've got this little seed in the palm of our hand and it's brown and it's dead. And then we take this little seed and we plant the seed in the ground. And then we abandon it forever because we have no expectations whatsoever that anything's ever going to come from that seed. Is that the way that it works? No, we put it in a little planter, we water it a little bit, we put it up by the sink, you know, and we're waiting for something to grow out. We are confidently expecting that something is going to come out of that seed, that something alive will come out of a seed that has died and been buried, and that the something will be very different looking. It'll be in a different form than the seed that we planted. And why are we confidently expecting that? Because that's the way it's designed. We understand that and we see it happen again. And again and again and again, Paul said, listen, folks, you have in your hand with that seed the answer to your own riddle. My goodness, you're overlooking the capacities of God and you're overlooking the way that he designs things. He says, you foolish person, what you sow every time that you plant a seed in the ground is a marvelous illustration of the very kind of transformation that God is going to bring to your body in resurrection after it too has been planted in the ground. For what you sow, meaning that little seed does not come to life unless it first dies. And what you sow, meaning that dead little seed, is not the body that is to be. It's not the plant that eventually comes forth from the ground, is it? It's very different. It's just a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or of some other kind of grain, and yet what happens to that seed? But God gives to it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own kind of body. And so you plant some kind of seeds, you get flowers, you plant some kind of seeds, and you get tomato plants, and you plant other kind of seeds, and you get trees, or bushes, or grain, or wheat, or whatever. But the point is, all of the seeds work the same way. And by God's design, what dies and is planted in the ground, comes forth alive and in a different form. And that's exactly what you expect between the planting and the coming forth, because you get the design. And Paul's saying, yeah, well, that's the way you're designed. That's the way I'm designed. That's the way death and burial and resurrection for the people of God is designed. And then he expands his argument by talking about the different kinds of flesh. He's like, just like there are different kinds of seeds, they produce different kinds of plants. All right. Well, not all flesh is the same either, he says, but instead by God's design, there are different kinds of physical bodies. There is one kind for humans and another kind for animals and another kind for birds and another kind for fish. But more than that, Paul says, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. And now notice the difference between the bodies and the heavenlies and earthly bodies like ours and the animals and the birds and the fish, because it's an appreciable difference. And it's a difference in glory. That's the point. He says, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, meaning of a much greater kind, of a vastly superior kind, and the glory of the earth is of another, much lesser and even within the heavens he goes on and he says there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star and glory and again what is the point in all of this that the glory of the body that we will receive in resurrection from the dead upon the return of Christ will be vastly superior to the body that we have now you're right he's saying god has a better plan in mind for you than this and oh the glory it will be like the glory of the heavens versus the glory of the earth, which was a compelling illustration in his day, in our day, it is way more compelling. And here's why. Because we have technology. We have the capacity through things like the Hubble telescope, for example, to pierce the veil of the heavens, to look into the skies and to see things that Paul could never see. So as we look out into the skies, for example, we see planets like Saturn. Okay, that's not something an artist did. That's that's out there. That's a picture. We see nebula like the butterfly nebula. It's actually a dying star. And it's at the height of its fury. It is throwing off gases at 600,000 miles per hour. And there's they're, they're 36,000 degrees in Fahrenheit. How they figure that stuff out, I don't know. Like, who's the astronaut that went up there with a the thermometer, you know? <laughs> 36,000! I think that's it! I mean, I don't know, but they just know. So that's all I got. We can see stars being born at the tips of places like this next line. It's called the mystic mountain. At the ends of these peaks, stars are being formed and thrown off into the universe. These are pictures, guys, we see galaxies. I've shown you some of these before, but like the majestic sombrero galaxy, that is an actual galaxy. Hollywood didn't go, hey, we came up with a really great image and this is it, you know, th- this is not something someone imagined unless you're talking about God. It's astonishing. We have a, a rose made of galaxies, that's the next one. I think that's really cool. Several galaxies form to look very much like a rose And then my personal favorite, and I've shared this here a few times in the past, but the Whirlpool Galaxy. And I do think it's cool, and it's got like another galaxy in its tail, which is also very cool. But the reason that I think this is so cool, and if you've been around, you know this, is they actually zoomed in on the core, the center of the galaxy, and that's what they took a picture of right there. They call that the X-Core. I call that a cross. I just think it's amazing. But I think the point is that when Paul comes and he says, look, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind much greater and the glory of the earth is of another kind much lesser. He's not kidding. And when he says that there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars and star differs from star and glory. Okay, you know what? He gets that right too. But now notice what he does because he takes these analogies and he uses them to help us to try to imagine therefore then how much greater the plan of God is for us than we do if we think this is the body we're going to get back. He's saying, no, no, no. You have this body now. Yeah, okay, that's good for the earth in which you live. But just try to imagine how much greater the next body is going to be it's a new body for a new existence, a new earth. He ties it directly to that when he says, and so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And now notice what he says, because he's shifting gears and now he's talking about our bodies. He says, for what is sown, meaning our bodies, like a seed, is perishable. And I want to pause and park on that for a minute. These bodies are perishable. And not only are they perishable, but After you get past about 40, you realize, uh uh-oh, they're actually perishing. (laughs) Bit by bit, joint by joint, piece by piece. Just doesn't all work the same, does it? It's astonishing. We are the whole of us, all of us, perishing, and all of us, all of us. And that's true, by the way, whether you take handfuls of vitamins every day. I take handfuls of vitamins every day. I have some in my pocket. So just, just so you know. It's true. Whether you watch your diet, it's good to watch your diet. I'm not going to lie. I don't watch my diet. I've been a like overly skinny person all my life. It doesn't matter what I eat. I know that makes enemies of some of you. I'm sorry that I just offended you. I, yeah. So I never talk to anybody about weight for that reason. It's just like, nah, man, you don't understand. Okay, you're right. It's true whether you exercise. I've become sort of an exercise fiend. I do all of these little exercise videos. You know, I'm doing this 22 minute one now because I've already done the 25-minute one and the 31 and the hour-long one and all of the other ones, frankly, that you can buy online. I've done all of these things. I do it in my living room. It's kind of embarrassing. I shut all the drapes and nobody can see me do it and it's a wonderful thing. And so here's the deal. You can stave it off somewhat with all of that stuff and all of that dieting and all of that exercise and all of that. You can hold back the deteriorating effects of father time unless cancer comes and cuts you down at the knees. But you can hold him off. But here's the deal, in the end he wins. Father time is undefeated. He does not lose, and he will not lose to me, and he will not lose to you. And so just to give you an unbelievably trivial example of that, what that means is that every one of us dads who has a teenage son who lives to beat us in things, ping pong, basketball, arm-wrestling. How fast can you run down the street? How far can you throw the ball? Like They're living for the day that they can take us down. Okay, bad news, dads. The day is coming. But I just want to let you know, at least for my son, it has not yet arrived. So <laughs> It has not come yet. I'll give you an even sillier illustration of that. We, um, when we were on vacation... One of the things we did was we went and looked at colleges. And we did that because our second oldest child, Haley, who is wonderful and incredibly bright, and she'll have all kinds of opportunities because she's worked hard and she's bright. So it's a great combination. But she is going into her senior year of high school, and we've got to kind of move towards some kind of a decision in terms of, all right, where are you going to go? And so we just thought, all right, even if you're not interested in schools, we'll just go look at some of these schools so you can start getting a feel for what they're like and what are you looking for. And so we went to see University of Georgia because we were close by. We went to see University of Tennessee because we were close by. And then, of course... We went to my alma mater and my wife's and and the school that our oldest daughter, her older sister is attending, uh, which is uh, the Florida State University. It is uh, the hallmark of all schools. It is the high watermark of the entirety of the collegiate experience. It is absolutely, undeniably awesome, but we won't be disappointed at all if she doesn't go there. And uh, then, because we had nothing better to do, we stopped at UF on the way home and um, <laughs> just had extra time and felt crazy. So, we took the tour at UF, and it ends up in their stadium, and then their stadium's impressive. But anyway, they try to get you to do the, the chomp. I mean, you know the chomp, right? This deal here. So they, the guides are up there and they got the whole group and they're like, put your left arm out. And so we all put our left arm out. I put my left arm out, you know. Put your right arm up like this, you know. And my kids are looking at me like, holy cow, is he actually going to do this, you know? And then they say, and bring them together. And I just went one of these deals here. That's <laughs> That's the way my arm works, man. But we wrap up the tour and we have to walk through the student union to get back to the car. And there were three Marines there, like jacked Marines. They're camo pants, they're tight blue shirts, muscles like on top of muscles, you know, 20 years old, you know, younger than my oldest daughter kind of guys. And they had set up like a table to promote the Marines, you know, all kinds of Marine paraphernalia. And they had a pull up bar in the student union. So, like people are trying to do pull ups and they have like this chalkboard, and you know, if you do five pull ups, I don't know, you get a keychain or something, you know. You do ten, you get this, you do fifteen, you get something better. So, like the gold standard was twenty. It was the highest number they had on board. You do twenty, you get a shirt. Like their shirt, you know, like Jack's shirt. <laughs> and so we're walking through, it's it's nine thousand degrees. It's one o'clock, I haven't eaten, which, you know, it's not good for me. I, I don't like that. And I mean, honestly, I'm in Gainesville, so I'm wanting to get out of here, right? So I'm just, I want to leave. But my son sees the pull-up bar and he's 13 and he says to the Marine, can I do it? And the guy said, well, sure, bud, go ahead. So he jumps up and legit, seriously, he did 20 pull-ups at the age of 13. That's pretty impressive. Like I could not do 20 pull-ups. At the age of thirteen, so he's just ripping them off, you know, and, and the Marines are going, whoa, whoa, the guy, what are you feeding this kid? They're asking, you know, and we're like, yeah, come on, buddy, you can do it. So he gets twenty, gets his shirt, they're writing his name on the chalkboard, you know, twenty and all that stuff. So I'm standing there with my wife by the pull up bar and Marine guy to our right, and she says uh, to me, why don't why don't you get a shirt? Do it, you can do 20. Get a shirt. And the marine guy looks at her and then looks at me and then looks at her and looks at me like she's kidding, right? Like, there's you got no shot, old man. But here's what she knows he does not know I'm actually good at pull ups, like, I'm not a good athlete, I've never been a good athlete, I've always wanted to be a good athlete. I think my ship has sailed on that. I'm not gonna lie. I'm clearly not made to play professional football or any other kind of sport. But I'm pretty good at pull-ups. And I hadn't worked out a long time. I mean, I hadn't done pull-ups since October of last year, and this is about three weeks ago. So I'm thinking, oh, I don't know. You know, I'm hot, I'm sweaty, it's Gainesville. I want to leave and I want to have lunch. And she's encouraging, oh, come on, do it. Come on, you can do 20. Okay, well, October of last year, I could do 30. And I did it several different times. So I'm thinking, I can probably do 20. But I don't wanna do it. And then the marine guy goes, well, do you wanna try? And then it was game on, that was it. (laughs) Oh, I was gonna do 20 if I pulled every muscle in my body. So I, I gave my wife my bag of Florida stuff and And I jumped up there, and here's what I underestimated, which was really very helpful. I've never done pull-ups in front of anyone, and I never intend to do that again. But man, when you got three jacked Marine guys watching you, all of which are snickering inwardly and outwardly at this idea, (laughs) and you've got your wife who's challenged you twice to do it, you've got your kids there, and then there are people like milling around watching the pull-ups, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, The adrenaline was awesome. My first pull-up, I swear I hit my chest on the bar, was unbelievable. I did 20 pull-ups seriously in about 24 seconds. Yeah. So as I'm ripping through these things, I'm thinking, this is so easy. It's unbelievable. Adrenaline is a great drug. And so it's like 15, 16, 17, 18. And I'm thinking, do I just keep going? Should I shoot for 30? I mean, it's been eight months since I did that, but maybe. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not trying to show off. I'm, I just, I'm trying to prove Marine Guy wrong, bring a little humility to him, and get a shirt. <laughs> That's it. It's all about the shirt. But I'm still thinking it through 1920. And so I get to the end, and I just hung there for a second to decide, do I want to keep going or do I just, you know, because I've qualified. I, I made the chart, gold standard. And then I see my son standing in front of me. And I think about all the dads who are going to be overtaken by their son. And I think about all the sons who maybe need to know that dad's still got a little gas in the tank. You know what I'm saying? And so I looked at him and I said, I said, bud, you did 20. He said, yeah, I went 21. Boom was wonderful. And it's the gift that keeps on giving. Dad, do you want to play basketball? But I'll be ready in 21 seconds, you know. I c- do you want to play to 21 or just 20? You know, so, I mean, there's so much you can do with it. It's fantastic. But I will tell you, I could never do that many pull-ups at his age. He's, he's way ahead of me. And he will overtake me he will bury me in ping pong and then he will bury me in basketball probably basketball and then ping pong actually but then he will bury me in running down the street he might be able to do that now I, I pretend like my foot's hurting me so I don't have to find out he will bury me in, in how far can you throw the ball he'll bury me in how many pull ups can you do and then he'll bury me he will that's all good It's okay, because he will bury me in faith. And what am I? I'm a seed. (laughs) That's it. When you put the seed in the ground, you don't walk away from it. You don't ignore it. You expect something to come from it. Why? Because by God's design, the seed that dies and is buried comes forth. And it comes forth in life, and in a completely different and far more glorious form than the dead, little, dry, brown thing that you stuck in the dirt. Paul says, "Look, what is sown like a seed? Okay, it's perishable. But what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, this body of ours, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown in natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body for he reasons. If there is a natural body, and that's this body that we live in this earth in, then there is also a spiritual body, not meaning some kind of a body that doesn't actually isn't a body, but, but a body that is fit for the heavenlies, that is made to rule the cosmos together with Christ from a new heavens and new earth. Think of the capacities of that. Thus it is written, he continues, the first man, Adam, from whom we all received these bodies, became a living being. Life for him is derivative, and so it is for us. God forms the first man from the dust of the earth, and then what he comes to life on his own because he contains the power of life within him? No, God breathes into him, and then he becomes a living soul. Before sin even enters into the world, God is raising people up from the dust, guys. You see that? The first man, Adam, became a living being. Oh, But the last Adam is different. The last Adam, who is Jesus, has the power of life within himself. And so he became a life-giving spirit. And now Paul gives the order in which he received these bodies. He says, it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then in resurrection, we gain the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth a man of dust. And then from him, we get these bodies that return to the dust. I know that. I've done funeral after funeral. I've done interment after interment. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Right? From dust we have come. To dust we shall return. But in Christ, that's not the end of the story. The second man is from heaven. The second man is from heaven. And he's the one that makes all the difference. You see, from him, we will inherit a body like His As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, which, if you think about it, has implications that are absolutely unbelievable. Because again, what he's saying is, look, when you are raised upon the return of Christ, you are re-embodied, given a new body for a new existence. You will be given a body like the resurrection body of the Lord. Or to put it a little bit differently, maybe to help you appreciate it, God the Father is going to give to you the same equipment for living that God the Father gave to God the Son who, God the Son himself, spoke all those galaxies that we looked at the pictures of into existence on the fourth day of creation. That's kind of cool. Because I think our tendency when we think about, you know, new life, new body and all that stuff is just to think in very limited terms. Oh, well, this means I think that I'm going to be like forever good looking and forever young and forever thin or forever not too thin. Maybe in my case, you know, forever I'll have hair, forever forever my knee won't ache and I'll never get sick and my, my shoulder won't hurt. You know what? And Paul's going, well, yeah, but is that all you got? Because this is inviting a whole lot more imagination than that. I mean, if you look at the accounts of the Gospels of what Jesus is able to do after His resurrection in His body, understanding that those accounts are not given us so that we can figure out all of the things that He can do, but they're incidental to the stories. What is He doing? I mean, for one thing, He appears and disappears at will. That's pretty cool. They're all in a room, the door's locked, He's not there, then He is and then He isn't. Okay, well, there you go then. What is the magic, and I use that word not in a, uh, an illusionist kind of way, but in an authentic kind of way. What is the magic of the new heavens and of the new earth that you, in your body, with all the capacities, if you will, of the body of Christ, will be able to perform in the new heavens and in the new earth? What will be its music? What will be its art? What will be its colors? It's inviting you to think big because the possibilities are endless. And then Paul begins to draw the whole thing to a close. In verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, like these bodies that we have in this world right here, cannot inherit the kingdom of God to come. The new heavens and the new earth are not fit for that existence nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, and here it is. We shall not all sleep. There will be Christians alive at the time of the return of Christ, he's saying, and the bodies they inhabit, just like the ones we inhabit now, will not be fit for the new existence either, so they too will need to be transformed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, and it will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised, imperishable. And we who are still alive when Jesus returns shall be changed. And you say, Ah, I don't know, man. I mean, ugh, I can't imagine that. And well, I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't think I can explain that to anybody. Well, get in line. Are you taking the infinite God and limiting him to what you can imagine? Are you? Because if He exists, and indeed He is infinite, that's not even rational. He's coming to you with His Word and saying, hey, hey, I I do things way beyond your ability to imagine. Here's what happens in the end. Paul continues, he says, and when that happens... When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in the book of Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. Death's been served up on a plate. There's not a crumb left. It's gone. It's consumed. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And on the cross, Jesus conquered sin entirely for us. And the power of sin is the, is the law. And before the cross... Jesus perfectly fulfilled every aspect of it for us. But thanks be to God, he says, who gives us the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so then, with all of that said, the whole discourse brought to a point. What's the point? Where's he going with this? Here it is. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. Do you hear how productive that sounds? And what kind of work? In the work of the Lord. Why? Well, because by God's word, you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain, it's not meaningless, it's not purposeless, death has been defeated, it's not a hamster wheel, it's linear in any way, shape, or form that you can grab all that you are and all that you have and lay it strategically before the Lord and say, listen, I want to convert this into something that isn't vain. I want to convert this into something that matters forever. God, give me direction and imagination to be able to do this kind of thing. How can you use my business to this end? How can you use my gifts and talents to this end? How can you use my time to this end? I want to labor in a labor that isn't vain because it never ends it endures like your word for forever because the people who come to faith in Christ or are influenced in their faith in Christ or encouraged in their faith in Christ, hey, Lord, like me, all right, well, we'll be buried, but we'll come forth. So that's the challenge. How are you doing in that regard? I think the challenge is to survey the various aspects of your work and of your life. And then bit by bit to put it under the Lordship of Christ and look for ways to convert it into something that ultimately and for forever matters. So go, chew on that when we're done. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful that, um, that You have given to us Your Word. We are thankful that it endures forever and that it, it reveals to us a Savior whose work endures forever. We thank you for the one who did not abandon us in our sin, did not allow us to return merely to the dust, did not leave us to live lives of futility, but instead who has come and and at the sacrifice of his own life, forgiven and purchased and redeemed us, brought us to himself. God, we praise you for that Savior. We come to Him and His Word in faith. Forgive us for all the ways that we limit You and we limit Him. Help us to think reasonably. Help us to recognize that He is greater and does greater things than we can ask or imagine. And instead of finding that offensive, find it wonderful. Lord, do beyond what we can ask or imagine. And give us wisdom by which and the power of Your Spirit by which and the fellowship of Your people and community by which to convert our lives into lives that matter. Our work, Lord, that it not be in vain, but enduring. Do these things we ask for Your glory. In Christ's name, amen.